Welcome back to the Fraser Rice Podcast. Today we get to talk with Ben Phillips. He serves as the Chief Investment Officer of EventShares, and he oversees research and portfolio management for the U.S. Policy Alpha ETF. Mr. Phillips previously worked for Goldman Sachs, Providence Equity Partners, and Lord Abbott. Additionally, Ben is a CFA charter holder and received an MBA from the University of Missouri. Welcome aboard, Ben. Thanks for having me, Fraser. Well, why don't we dive right in here? Uh, how do you think about investing at EventShares? Yeah, I think a story actually about how EventShares came about makes sense to, to help answer that question. So really in the run-up to the last presidential election, my co-founder and I were at Goldman and we were looking at a Trump versus Hillary campaign. And we said, you know, these are going to be the candidates. This is before the primaries. These are going to be, be the candidates and there's going to be a very different set of policy outcomes under a Trump presidency versus a Hillary Clinton presidency. And we thought to ourselves, there's an opportunity here. And so we back-tested past election cycles and looked at the massive sector rotation that occurs around changes in presidents. And it's really a whole policy shift that occurs with a presidential shift. And we realized there was an opportunity there to create an investment product around that that captures that opportunity. So we understand that government affects everything. And so when you get a, uh, a shift in policy, a shift in personality and leadership, that that's going to have significant ramifications on legislation, regulation filings, et cetera. Uh, how do you break this down and organize your thinking? It, it, it can be the type of thing where, you know, you get someone like Trump, who is a complete polar opposite in some ways to the way Obama thinks about governing. Mm -hmm. That's a lot to take in and digest. How do you, how do you get that into bite-sized form so that you're able to use it well? So what we do is we look at the whole policy landscape, and we're looking at senior leadership and their agendas too, so not just presidential. We're also looking at judicial as well. But what we're doing is we're looking across the whole policy landscape and seeing what are the top 10 to 15 major policy trends that we think are going to impact markets and the economy over the next five to 10 years. So we're really, we try to narrow it down into what we call policy themes. And then we say, okay, well, how much of the portfolio should be allocated to each theme? And that's really where our conviction levels ex is expressed in those policy themes. So right now, there's four themes in the portfolio, four major themes. It's deregulation, it's defense, it's healthcare, and it's tax reform. So four big themes that we think are really going to move markets over the coming years. And so from a broader perspective, how do you take those themes and then create actionable ideas out of that? ETFs are pretty interesting. And so you can always sort of invest ETF-wise in a theme, I suppose. But mm -hmm. it's difficult to beat indexes in that respect. How do you take your theme and then apply your analysis to it so that you're able to get actionable names and, and make good decisions on that? Sure. And I could probably give an example, too. It was a recent example that, that may help. But I mean, just really, once we've determined those policy trends, or the policy themes that we're going to be focusing the portfolio on, then we drill down and ask ourselves, you know, which subsectors or industry groups are going to be most impacted. And then we drill down into those industry groups and do fundamental analysis. So looking at, you know, which companies are going to have the highest revenue impact or margin impact, you know, which ones are going to see an increase in cost or a decrease in costs, and how's that going to flow through to their EPS and their overall valuation. So it's really breaking it down from that policy trend down to the industry level, and then drilling down in individual stocks. An example I think that's helpful is, you know, we looked at the drug distributors recently, and there's really three big players. It's Cardinal Health, Amerisource Bergen, and McKesson. And as we were looking at this policy trend, we saw, you know, the CEOs were being dragged in front of Congress, the stocks were getting beaten up, there was a lot of negative headlines out there. 
But when we actually analyzed the policy, there was not really ex- any explicit policy initiatives that were going to impact these companies or impair their business models in our view. So then we drilled down into those three companies and said, okay, well, which one is fundamentally the soundest? We decided Amerisource Bergen, ABC, was in the best position because they had low contract renewals um, over the coming years. They had you know better margin protection in our view, and they also were trading at a cheaper valuation in our opinion. So we thought that justified ABC to be the right holding out of those three. But you know I thought that example might help illustrate a little bit of how we look at it. Let's dive into the $64,000 question and trying to make sense of Trump and the current political environment. We've just come off of, uh, let's call it at a minimum, a controversial appearance in Helsinki, Finland from sure. Trump. Uh, additionally, you've got a situation where his way of doing things is a real affront to what I would describe as the political industrial complex. Mm-hmm. And we're left wondering, you know, where are we as a country uh, from a political standpoint? And how do you make sense of Trump and his actions as you start to look around the policy mandates and as we start to look into midterm elections going forward? So with Trump, you know, it's been a different, uh, I guess, circumstance than maybe would have forecasted. Like when we were looking at his presidency, he had a pretty clear campaign. You know, I think he's he's still focused on those goals that he set during his campaign, and he's focused on achieving those. So we look not just to Trump's communications and his administration's communications, but we're looking at really senior party leadership. You know, we're looking at senior Republican and Democratic leadership for their policy initiatives. We're looking not just at the executive office, and we're trying to determine what really the policymakers are are setting for policy. Do you drill down into the executive branch, the agencies and so on, since they're promulgating regulations that oftentimes have in many ways a bigger impact on businesses than the actual legislation itself? How do you keep track of that? Yeah, no, that's a great question, too. And one quick aside policymaking isn't just the law being written and signed, you know, written by the legislative branch and signed into law by the executive. It's actually the rules and implementation process that occurs from multi-year period after. So just because a law is passed doesn't mean that the industry or companies in the economy know exactly what that means for their business. So there's this multiple-year process where there's the rules writing and implementation. So that's actually an opportunity to capture a lot of that alpha when you're the only people who are actually analyzing the rules writing process. So that's something we take pride in is we're looking at how the laws are coming about, how the rules are being written, how that's changing the game for different companies and how that's going to change their fundamentals. To get back to the midterms, there's a growing consensus that there may be a, uh, a blue wave coming back and people are tired of Trump's shenanigans uh, or maybe the blue wave never comes because he's doing, quote unquote, such a good job that everyone's benefiting. The truth is probably somewhere in the middle. What are you looking at right now and what are the tea leaves indicating to you? So we think it's too early to call midterms. There's so many factors that could come up between now and then. It's certainly going to be an interesting time. I mean, what the economy is doing, what the stock market's doing particularly, I think is going to be really important. Where we are on this trade issue, I think is going to be really important, particularly for the farm belt. You know, I think a lot of people are looking at just all of the potential unknowns between now and midterms, and we think it's it's really a fool's errand to try to call. But there's certainly, you know, if the economy is not doing well, if we see some sort of market downturn or anything like that, you know, there, that could be an opportunity for the Democrats to take some seats definitely in the House and the Senate's going to be a little bit more challenging in our view. On a quick aside, does, does something like the Supreme Court nomination process enter into your thinking or is that divorced enough from the actual policy component that it's, it's an interesting component, may have an ancillary impact on the governmental process and the policy process, but something that's more distraction than useful? 
Well, that's an interesting question. I mean, I think it has implications, and we're looking at. It. I mean, one of the back to your previous question on you know agencies that could impact policy. CFPB is something we've been researching a lot, and just the deregulation going on at CFPB. That's the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, which is really responsible for consumer protection in the financial sector. And we're positioning in some non-traditional lenders because of the CFPB deregulation, and then the Supreme Court. You know, Judge Kavanaugh is a potential further deregulatory force for you know the CFPB. So we think that is something that is important. Another thing, just on judicial, is Trump has nominated more federal judges in his first year than than I think Bush did in his entire term. So it's just a function of how many open seats and vacancies there were. So that, that's absolutely important for kind of long term policy making. And we're looking at that, too. I guess the other part, too, is it sounds like Kavanaugh is uh, fairly dead set against net neutrality, and that has implications in oh, the variety of technology and telecommunications sectors. Yeah, certainly. And we looked at Supreme Court back when we were looking at Obamacare, right? The Supreme Court had a huge bearing on Obamacare's you know, potential imp- implementation and ended up you know, saying it was okay and constitutional. Interesting. So let's go through some of the different types of policy shifts and themes that you're working on here. Maybe let's start with the big one in the room right now, which is trade and the concept of tariffs and trade wars. And are these the types of things that are going to benefit local companies and businesses or whether they're going to hurt due to retaliatory efforts in China and beyond? Take us through your thinking on the trade and tariff issue. Yeah, we've been writing a lot on trade this year. We we highlighted back in January and we've written multiple pieces on how we think trade's the biggest risk to markets. And, you know, it's really down to the fact that globalization has driven higher asset prices, it's driven higher global growth and lower inflation. Really, that's good for the whole global economy. Our concern is that if global trade starts to break down, even temporarily, even if it's just for a year or two as we're going through these trade disputes, but if global trade breaks down, all of that reverses. So we're going to see lower asset prices, lower growth, higher inflation. That's all bad for stock markets, right? So when we're approaching trade, we're saying what is the best way to serve our investors and our fund holders? And our thought is having the ability to go short, frankly. And it's having the ability to position the portfolio for kind of a sell-off in the markets and be able to capture some or at least buffer some of the underperformance from your long positions. The other thing, we're investing largely in small and mid-cap stocks for the most part. So we think those are generally more single business line or, or more narrow business lines, less international sales, and more focus on the U.S. economy. So we're looking for companies that have less exposure to global factors, to exports, to imports, and things like that. Do you see any shift in your thinking if the midterm elections do something significant, or do you get the sense that the elections themselves aren't going to move too much in terms of uh, the balance of power such that there would be a real major shift in the way we think about the tariff issue? You know, if Democrats were to take the House and the Senate, then I think that would certainly change the narrative. I think you could certainly see in that case legislation where there was more congressional approval required. We even saw that happen recently, right, where there was a Senate bill um, proposed to to limit the president's ability to set tariffs and national security, the Section 232. But, you know, I think if there was a, a truly a blue wave in Congress, that would be something that would change our thinking and probably change our positioning as well. So let's go to a different issue that is a hot button issue, to be sure, and something that affects economies, certainly in terms of labor costs. It certainly affects things in terms of demand resetting. 
immigration. Uh, immigration policy is something that is a major thorn in the side, I think, of Trump as he tries to go forward in the way he thinks he's protecting the borders versus the general consensus of how people think about how people should be entering in this country. Mm -hmm. How do you think about that in terms of investing? Investing, that's another challenging one. You know, I think we look at the long-term immigration policy, and that's something we're looking at. And, you know, I, I think it'd be more from a concern from a structural standpoint in the U.S. economy if we can't get enough high-skilled labor um, from foreign countries. You know, that's something our economy depends upon. I think for the way we're positioning in it, and we don't have any explicit immigration plays in the portfolio because it's it's really too challenging to position. We are positioning around NAFTA. We're positioning around you know things that are related to North American immigration. But I think the explicit immigration positioning is challenging. You talk a little bit in your latest newsletter about uh, trucking and uh, the driverless car type themes and so on. Maybe go into that a little bit. Something that, to me, certainly the driverless and sort of GPS phenomenon, we've already seen the initial innings of it taking place with Uber and uh, Lyft and other types of scenarios. But taken to its nth degree with Google's situation and crews with GM uh, dislocating different types of drivers, different types of transportation situations, that can have a seismic impact on not only the economy generally and how things are transported, but real estate, uh, retail, all sorts of scenarios. Where do you come out on that? Right now, we think that we're still very much in the early innings on the trucking side. So they've been slower to adapt to or adopt you know, newer technologies. What's the most recent thing is, is legislation that required these electronic driving logs, these EDLs, that are, you know, you, you, it used to be a paper log where drivers would write their hours driven and miles and things like that, which allowed for a fudge factor, frankly. And now with the electronic driving logs, they cannot fudge anymore. So they have to you know, get off the road after a certain number of hours, rest, can't you know, run the car. So you're seeing some changes going on, some structural shifts in the trucking industry where you're seeing teams of two now emerge more and more for the long haul where they can keep driving, you know, continually. Um, you know, so it's it's definitely changing. But as far as, you know, driverless technology and all that impacting trucking right now, that's not the case. But in trucking, we are seeing spot markets start their spot rates in trucking start to spike. And we're seeing, you know, a shortage of drivers. People have talked about that for years, but we're really seeing it now where there's a shortage of drivers. So you're seeing wages go up. You're seeing, you know, logistics rates go up for intermodal for a train going to, you know, rail or rail going to ship all that. It, you're seeing rates spike currently. Interesting. One of the areas where you would think there would be sort of unilateral support is in the area of defense spending uh, and making sure that the country's borders are defended well and that we maintain a uh, strong presence internationally to protect our interests and to support our friends. Uh, certainly Trump's rhetoric uh, uh, makes that uh, – I would say confusing or at the very least challenging in terms of analyzing uh, and with a full slate of Republicans currently in place on the Senate and the House side, uh, one would think there'd be sort of a one-way street in terms of thinking about defense. But it's probably a little more complicated than that. Where are we from a defense spending standpoint and how does that impact the way you're looking at uh, investments in that theme? Well, I think we're at actually still the early stages of a multi-year defense spending pickup. So we saw it in the most recent, I think up 9% year over year. And we see this typically under Republican presidents where there are defense spending increases that last a multi-year period. So we think we're actually just in the first year of a multi-year period of defense spending increases. And then another tailwind for the defense contractors and defense suppliers 
is the ability for U.S. companies now to sell more goods to foreign governments. So that's something we think is an additional tailwind for defense companies is not just the U.S. spending increasing over the next few years, which we're confident in, but it's also this foreign government sales potential. So we go from defense to energy, which is another way for America to sort of reinstate its independence, and it's another way for us to exert influence over the rest of the world, and also uh, a source of impact that we get from the rest of the world, whether it's oil prices or solar energy policy or different types of scenarios where we're interested in fueling our own growth and powering everything that makes this country great. Where are we in terms of U.S. energy policy? And how do we broaden the discussion to sort of understand where that goes in terms of not only investing themes, but you start to get into issues with uh, conservation and how does that impact where the United States is thinking about it versus maybe what our policymakers are thinking? Yeah, so energy deregulation has been a theme in the portfolio, and it's it's really specifically to the companies that are going to benefit from an improved regulatory environment. There's some specific plays in there. So we're looking at, at you know pipeline companies who are going to have more access and more ability to build a little more freely, so a little easier permitting process there. We looked at refiners back in April as they were no longer you know required to buy these effectively carbon offsetting tax credits. They, there, there was waivers being granted to the refiners, and that caused a tailwind in addition to the oil price um, picking up. So the EPA was granting waivers. So there's all these little things that are going on under the scenes, and so you're not seeing it in Congress, but you're seeing it at the agency level, the EPA. You're seeing it in different places where it's a little easier for energy companies to operate right now. And again, I think we're probably still in the early innings there. In our portfolio, we're really looking for specific one, you know, single policy catalysts um, in the energy space. So we have an exporter in there that's Chenier, LNG is the ticker. We have Delic, which is positioned to capture uh, the excess spread in the Permian Basin. And then we have Shell, a midstream, which SHLX, the ticker there, they're, they're participating, we think, in that ability to build pipelines more freely in the United States. And so is it fair to extrapolate that you're, you're positive on economic growth in the United States uh, by virtue of this analysis? You know, I, we try not to be macro forecasters, but I would say, you know, all of our indicators point to strong growth in the U.S., though, like I said at the beginning, we're very concerned about trade. That's something that can completely disrupt confidence in the U.S. economy. It could completely, you know, we could have a confidence crisis where asset prices and the stock market all fall together if there is this global trade disruption, if it escalates, frankly. Let's move on to the banking sector. One of the major themes that's come across from Trump is that uh, the pendulum is swinging away from real command and control regulation into a more relaxed regulatory environment. I think there's positive and negatives on both sides of that. What are you seeing in terms of the deregulatory attitude that the administration is looking at right now? And how do we how do we take advantage of that or otherwise guard against the pitfalls that that can sometimes cause? Yeah, I mean, one, one of the bigger things that we saw recently was just the, the financially significant bank threshold raised, you know, from $50 billion to $250 billion in assets. We thought that was a big tailwind for regional banks. You know, that was something that we had played initially. We think that trade's almost over, actually. Um, but there are still some regional banks who are going to benefit from that. So there's the ones that are going to be potentially acquired or the ones that are going to get bigger by acquiring, you know, com- good good competitors. Um, so we think that's an interesting way to play financial deregulation. Another place that we're really focused is the CFPB, so the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, which is really responsible for consumer protection in the financial sector. But really, in our view, we think that the benefit is going to fall mostly to the specialty finance companies. So the non-traditional lenders, the more short-term lenders, 
who are servicing a very needed part of the market, and like generally lower income earners who need credit and need access to credit still. And they've been kind of shut out of credit markets and, and the ability to access capital for a number of years. So we think these companies who are coming in and helping serve that segment are actually doing something good for economic growth. And then they're improving their businesses and, and growing their businesses too. You mentioned you don't really want to take a macro view on a variety of economic factors, which makes a lot of sense to me because that's sometimes very difficult to get right not once but twice, mm-hmm. which is what you need to do to make money. The analysis of the banking industry to me is interesting as we look like we're in a rising interest rate environment. Do you pay attention to that as you analyze whether the consolidation movement that you described in the banking sector takes hold or not? I think the prevailing wisdom is that if interest rates are going to go up, those banks that are well-positioned as it relates to their net interest income are going to really benefit. Uh, Does that enter into your thinking or do you try to divorce those two factors as you analyze what's happening? It does come into our thinking. I would say one thing that we talk about a lot is there's four key policy factors. There's fiscal, trade, regulatory, and monetary. And we think monetary is the only one that's actually over-scrutinized and the rest are ignored. So we think the real opportunities in those other three, fiscal, trade, and regulatory, but, you know, monetary is still important. It's very important for asset prices. It's important for bank stocks and we own financials. So, you know, we do look at that. But I would say I'm, I'm not going to have a far off consensus view on where rates are going that I'm going to position the portfolio around. So let's try our hand at another quagmire, uh, which is healthcare. And anybody who's gone to the doctor or has sort of entered into the uh, medical system lately understands that that's a confusing place to be. And uh, as the uh, ACA has been implemented and possibly de-implemented, it's difficult to tell who the winners and losers are going to be onto that. How are you analyzing that? It, it seems to be a federally mandated situation, and then it's applied through a variety of the states. And you almost have two levels of analysis going on there. Maybe take us through what you're thinking on those lines. Yeah, that's right. And if you think about just the change that's occurred from a year ago, where Republicans were trying to kill Obamacare, and now they've pretty much flipped the script to where they are looking and more willing, it seems, publicly to expand Medicare and Medicaid, but really only under their terms. So, um, you know, I think there, there's we're watching the risk reduction payments in New Mexico. You know, we, we don't think those will be stopped. But I think to your question, there's a lot going on in healthcare. It's a major part of the economy. It's almost 25% of our portfolio. But the way we're positioning is we're looking for those companies that are still going to be beneficiaries under Obamacare and see continued increasing growth from the tailwind from Obamacare. It's still impacting these companies and these stocks, which that tells you right there how long of a tail policy can have. It's really over long horizons. And then the other side of the healthcare positioning is really in the healthcare tech and outpatients. So really modernization of healthcare, moving people to more comfortable settings, more home health and things like that. Although home health is fraught with its own issues, we think that trend generally makes sense. And long term, that's going to be a good direction to position the portfolio. In my day job, I see a lot of different situations where there are investment opportunities for health data improvement and process and improvements to be able to make things more efficient. How early in terms of early stage types of companies do you deal with or do you just stay with a little more tried and true components? Typically, because it's an ETF format, it's accessible to all investors. You know, I think our perspective says 250 million market cap and above. We typically don't go really below a billion. In some instances where we see a really compelling investment thesis, we will. But typically, we keep it above a billion. So those are small cap companies still, but more established. They've been around for a number of years and have you know the right processes and controls in place. 
You know, one that's really interesting is Teladoc. This is tele- a telemedicine provider. TDoc is the ticker. But they are one of the only ones out there, we think, that are executing really well, seeing really good growth, and one of the few providers that, that insurers and other companies can go to to get really high-quality telemedicine. So to sort of bring it back to a 30,000-foot view, uh, a lot of people that I talk to are looking at the markets and saying, geez, the the stock market continues to persist, uh, even though there are certainly a lot of political storm clouds, uh, a lot of uncertainty, and a, a lot of different data out there that would point you in one direction or another. And all of this, I would say, points us in the direction of volatility where the markets are going up and down many times for reasons stated or unstated. And I would imagine that that's going to be a theme going forward and something that you have to not only try to take advantage of but guard against uh, and and without necessarily having the sort of set battle plan in place. You know, it could be a Helsinki press conference. It could be a terrorist attack. It could be an unannounced happening one way or the other. How do you deal with volatility? And as we go into the midterm elections, uh, surprises could abound. How do you deal with that? So I agree with you that if it looks like we're going to be entering a period of increased volatility. You know, this year has definitely already shown more volatility. Some people would say it's more normal volatility. 2017 was just up, up, up. I think the cart got a little bit ahead of the horse in 2017, where there was more excitement and exuberance over the economic potential of tax reform, over the deregulatory you know, benefit to the economy and things like that. And then 2018, it was kind of a reset where people reevaluated, okay, well, did, did asset prices get a little ahead of the fundamentals here? And so I think that's the period we're in right now in 2018. Currently, I think people are, are very optimistic on Q2 earnings. So what you see, there's a good story around there. There's a good narrative. For the next couple of weeks, I imagine people will continue to bid up stocks. And then you get in that August vacuum period where there's lower volumes, there's less news. Sometimes you know, low volume can translate into big volatility if, if there's some people trying to move money around some of the institutional investors out there. So I, I think as we enter August, as we enter through midterms, I think it's going to be a choppier rest of the year and as people try to figure out what the right valuations are for all the companies out there. Really sort of hearkening on that theme, do you, do you have any other big predictions or things that you see over the next year or so that the casual investor or even just the casual follower of the markets uh, ought to be looking for? Well, you know, I, I would like to express just some caution about 2019. I mean, this is something everyone's still talking about, economic growth, you know, picking up over 3% in 2019. If you do see a global trade disruption, you're going to see lower global growth. What you're going to see is you're going to see some earnings declines at companies. Right now, I think the S&P, the, the average forecast for S&P earnings for 2019 is up 10% versus 18. And 18 is up, I think, 11 12%. So, Big earnings year in 17, big earnings year in 18, and then people are still forecasting a big earnings year in 19, where I just think expectations might be getting a little ahead themselves for 19, given how much uncertainty there is out there. Ben, great stuff. How do we keep track of your prognostications and your writings over the coming months and weeks? Yes, we're fully transparent in the portfolio. We're fully transparent in what we're doing. So all of our research and, and that describes what's going on in our strategies is at eventshares.com. So people can sign up to any of the newsletters. There's weeklies, there's monthlies, there's quarterlies. And then there's also this policy tracker that we recently launched last quarter, and we just updated it for Q3. The policy tracker covers, I think, 100 plus U.S. stocks 
that have the highest policy factor sensitivity. So those that are the most exposed to policy changes, and it covers pretty much every industry you can think of. It calls out a number of stocks. So great starting point is the policy tracker for investors. And then the weekly policy insights is an excellent email newsletter, three to five minute read. So everything's on eventshares.com. That's right. If you want to learn about the funds, it's eventsharesfunds.com. Terrific. Ben, thank you very much for coming on. Fraser, thanks for having me. You've been listening to my conversation with Ben Phillips, the Chief Investment Officer of EventShares. Additional episodes are coming up shortly. Thanks again for listening and have a great day.